Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 90. We read it at the beginning of the service. We'll read it again. Now, I'm going to do something a little differently. Uh, we use the King, New King James Version in our worship and teaching, but there is a poetic beauty in the old King James of this psalm that I'd like to read it. So if you have your New King James, or if that's what you're using, or something else other than the old King James, follow along, but please don't just try to find out all the differences. You know, sometimes people do that if you're using a different translation, like, oh, that's different, oh, that's different, oh, that's different. And at the end, when you say, what exactly did you read? Oh, I don't know. I was just looking at all the differences, you know. Um, so try not to do that, okay? Just enjoy this. It's from the Lord. It's uh, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And so it's very unique among the other Psalms. Is this is one that was passed down that was composed by Moses. So uh, most of the Psalms are from David and other writers, but this is a very unique Psalm. So this is Psalm 90, I'm reading from the Old King James, but uh, we'll be looking at the text in, in both. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for having this psalm written and preserved throughout history and then translated it into our language, both in the older version, Lord, and in uh, a newer one in the uh, speech in which we actually talk, Lord. And so we thank you for giving us your word and that we have um, faithful translations. And we pray that you would 
Give us understanding now in the scriptures. We pray that you would bless us and be with us as we go through this portion of your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, today is generally considered, I think, you know, it's not a stretch to say, this is New Year's Eve, all right, even though it's not yet evening. This, this day is considered, the, you know, it's the last day of the year. And we've had a few other holidays right before this, haven't we? This is, you know, the holiday season comes for us, to, at least of European background, in the fall and in the winter. Uh, we had Thanksgiving, we, then we had Christmas and, or Advent, if you follow the liturgical calendar. So there's all kinds of things going on. If I was going to propose a change... I would like to see Thanksgiving moved to December 31st, okay? Because uh, I think we miss out on something. You know, we're anticipating the new year. It's all full of hope and expectation Most for most of us. Some of us are like, uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. But generally speaking, you know, we, we anticipate good things. We have God's promise that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so we know whatever comes to us, whether it seems to us to be uh, bad or good, God will use it for our good and for his glory. And so we have that confidence. And we look back on things, we can say, ah, that's not the path I would have chosen, but that's the one the Lord knew I needed to go down. And so we can trust God in every circumstance and every situation. But I think on the last day of the year, it ought to be a day of thanksgiving. You know, in our house, generally speaking, we, on, at Thanksgiving dinner, we'd go around and have everyone uh, just say, what are you thankful for? And generally, everybody can come up with something. Um, it's a good thing, I think, to do that today and look back over the past year. And granted, some of us had real sorrow and tragedy. Some of us have gone through heartbreak this past year. We've had to say goodbye to family and friends and uh, loved ones and people that we've known um, and leave them in God's hands and uh, move on, move ahead with our own lives. Uh, we've seen sickness. You know, we've seen difficult times. Some have struggled with finances. Some have struggled with personal relationships with others. Some have had problems uh, with employment or work. Lord, uh, Lord, the Lord knows all the things that we've gone through. But we've also been the recipients of an abundance of blessings. The problem is, if you're like me, I tend sometimes to just focus on negative things, and I need the Lord to help me with that. And it's good to go back and say, okay, what are, what are the things that actually were good that I really do need to be thanking God for? And if you look back and think about this past year, you have a lot to be thankful for. First and foremost, if you're a Christian, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and that as one year passes, you're one year closer to being with him in glory. And even though we go through this life, and this life does have meaning and purpose, as we'll see as we go through this psalm, that ultimately our purpose is to be found in God, not in ourselves, and to be found in doing his will, not in doing just whatever we want. So, as we look at this psalm, there's some interesting things. There's seven things we're going to learn about God. We're going to, there's seven things mentioned in this psalm about ourselves. And there's actually seven petitions that are given in this psalm. So it kind of unfolds, first telling us about God. That's the right place to start. And so what do we learn? Well, the first thing we learn in verse 1, 
is that God is our God. Now this psalm, is, it's really clearly from Moses. Moses talks about God's fear, God's anger, God's wrath. Moses was the one that brought the law of God to us. And the Bible tells us that, you know, no, uh, that no man is justified by the works of the law is evident, for it is written, uh, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, the, the law of God shows us where we fail. Some people think like, well, I, I keep all the law perfectly. And it's like, you're like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus when he told Jesus that when Christ cited the commandments to him, he said, well, I kept all these from my youth. It says in the Bible, in Mark, it says, and Jesus loved him. So I, I think there was hope for that young man. Uh, I'm quite convinced if Jesus loves him, then things worked out at the end. But he said, I've done all these things. And so Jesus then confronted him with the 10th commandment, said, well, then go take everything that you own and sell it and give it to the poor and uh, come follow me. And in the Greek, the last thing Jesus said is, come follow me, having taken up the cross. And then it says in the Gospels, at this word, he became sorrowful and he went away. And the other disciples said, Lord, you know, uh, what's going on? And Jesus said, how hardly shall those that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? Because we have a tendency to make idols out of the things that God gives us. The rich young ruler owned his own property, but he owned it from God. And so Jesus confronted him and showed him that he hadn't kept God's law perfectly. The 10th commandment killed him, showed him that he was dead in trespasses and sins because he was coveting his own property because he wasn't holding it as from God. Isn't that, I, I find that to be rather interesting. The really interesting thing about that rich young ruler, if you look at him and then read Romans chapter seven, I personally think it would be possible to make an argument that that rich young ruler may have been the apostle Paul. Because Paul, when he describes what he went through and how the 10th commandment killed him, even though he kept, and the same thing that young man said, Paul said elsewhere, I've kept all of God's law perfectly. Okay, he wasn't bragging that he was you know, righteous in and of himself. But Paul had the same testimony. He thought he was right with God, then he found out he wasn't right with God. Now, if that's not Paul, and you can't find biblical evidence, there's just a parallel, I'm pretty sure that rich young ruler probably knew who uh, Saul of Tarsus was, because there's too much of a parallel between the, the two characters. But the point is, Everything that we have, we have from God. And if we don't recognize that, then we're the losers. So we have a lot to be thankful for. And if the Lord calls us to give up wealth or position or even reputation, because to pick up the cross meant not to get a little religious symbol or go buy a piece of jewelry. It meant to bear the shame that comes with following Jesus. The cross was reserved for the most basest, vile criminals. It was a horrible death of anguish. And Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me, having taken up the cross. And the idea of poverty perhaps didn't trouble the young man that much, but poverty mixed with the shame of uh, being considered an evildoer, and that's what Christians were uh, viewed as in the early centuries, and even now in parts of the world, Christians are persecuted and uh, considered to be horrible people because well, because the world hates them, because they hate Jesus. But we need to recognize we have so much to be thankful for, and we have it from God. And so it starts off, let's go through this here quickly. I just wanted to give a little preference, because we're going to see here that God is everything, and he ought to be our all. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
Now Moses, when he wrote this, was in the wilderness, I'm quite sure. And he looks back and he considers the generations that had passed since the beginning of the creation. Moses was aware of that because he had the book of Genesis with him, <laughs> written with his own hand by the inspiration of God. So he knew how things had begun and he saw God's covenantal faithfulness. After Adam and Eve fell, what did God make for them before he tossed them out of the garden? He made for them coats of skins, didn't he? Hides, it says in the Hebrew. And so they were clothed. God gave them a proper covering. Well, in order to make those, some animal had to die. Later, we can kind of piece this together if we're good Bible detectives, because we see um, their son Abel coming with this sacrificing a lamb. Where did Abel learn that? I believe he learned it from what God had done. And Adam and Eve instructed their child and said, we need to approach God through a sacrifice because we have forfeited our right to come before him in and of ourselves because we've sinned. Uh, uh, Cain, rather, when he came, he brought the fruit of the ground. Well, some have said, well, there were vegetable offerings, if you want to call that, or produce. It could be offered in the temple, so it wasn't necessarily uh, unacceptable. Well, it was being offered apart from a blood sacrifice. So that Thanksgiving offering of bringing the, bringing the first fruits of your produce to God, it wasn't accepted by the Lord because, to put it uh, in, within the whole of Bible, Cain wasn't trying to come through Christ. He was trying to come by his own works. So here Moses looks back, but he sees God's faithfulness. After Cain slew Abel, they, Adam and Eve had another son named Seth, and through him, through his line, eventually um, you had the man Enoch who walked with God. And it says, and he was not, for the Lord took him. Enoch walked with God. Uh, I believe 365 years, and then he just took a step one day, and the next thing he knew, he was heading to heaven. Okay, He never experienced death. So Moses, looking back, sees God's covenantal faithfulness. He was aware the world got very wicked, but then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Moses remembered that. And then after Noah uh, and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wives had survived the great flood, they began to populate the earth. And then the Tower of Babel happened because of men's pride that they were going to build a tower up to heaven, either meaning that, I don't think they necessarily thought they were going to climb all the way to heaven. I think primarily they thought they could gain some control over God or build a tower high enough so that if there was a flood again, they wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, men always want to deal with the punishment of sin, but not sin itself. And so... Uh, they built that, and then God scattered them. And as they scattered, the, we see the various language groups and ethnic groups develop in history. And from the Semitic line, that is the line of Shem, the covenant was established through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then uh, Jacob's 12 sons, and from them the tribe of Judah. As that was unfolding in Moses' day, you know, Judah was the, not the firstborn in time, Reuben was. But Judah was the first and foremost in the military aspect. The tribe of Judah was strong, and the Messiah was to come. Later, it would be through the house of David, and we see that right down to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of David and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses looks back and he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. God has always been covenantally faithful, and that should inspire us by God's grace to want to be the same in gratitude, to be thankful and to be covenant keepers. And note he says, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. 
<coughs> even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses declares that God is our dwelling place through all of history, every generation, and also that God is eternal. God transcends the creation. The creation was brought into being. God is before all things. He's eternal. I've said this plenty of times, and I hope you've learned it from your Bible, but I hope if I can encourage you. An important thing to remember, the, the first point of theology is to remember that God is a different sort of being than we are. And let me tell you, that answers so many questions from stupid people, and by that I mean that with a fool that said in his heart there is no God, and when I'm stupid, I don't, I'm not trying to put somebody down just using you know, slander, Someone in a stupor, someone whose mind isn't functioning, someone who's turned away from God and their mind is darkened. They have all these, well, how can God do that? How can God do this? God is infinite and eternal. He is a different sort of being. And this is what Moses is declaring. He's sovereign. The next thing he says, after declaring that God is God from all eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. Now, the Hebrew of that passage literally, and I wish they would have translated a little more literally, but children of men is a good translation. But the Hebrew is beni adam. Beni means sons of. Ben is son, beni is sons of. And then adam, sons. He says to return, shuv, O sons of Adam. Reminder of the fall of Adam is brought up in this passage. So that's what's in the Hebrew there. And you can go and check your strongest concordance or other things and find out if that's true or not. I, it is, but you know, please verify things when you hear somebody preaching and saying something that's different than what you have in your Bible. You are God. You turn men to destruction. That is, you turn them back to the dust. And you say, turn, O sons of Adam. And he points out God has a different time schedule than we do. He works in his own time frame. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Peter refers to this in Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, as to the delay in Christ's return. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, but then he also adds that... Uh, for one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, that doesn't mean that God gets confused over those two things. A thousand years is a thousand years because Christ created time. Sequential existence happened with past, present, and future so that we creatures could live, and he could make us. That's why it says in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 1 that through Christ the ages were made. Uh, meaning time. Christ created time. In Isaiah chapter 9, when it says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, literally that's the Father of time uh, or the Father of eternity. So Christ is the one that made time. But it's irrelevant as far as God's plan is concerned. We may you know, pray as Moses prayed, how long, O Lord? But God has his plan and we can trust him. He's always been our a hiding place, our resting place, our dwelling place through every generation. And he has his own time schedule for doing things. Look at Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Look at Moses, 40 years as Pharaoh's uh, daughter's son, brought up in the royal palace, learning all the knowledge that the Egyptians had, and they were pretty well versed in a lot of things. 
there was a lot of paganism there, but they also, uh, you know, if you look at the pyramids and some of the mathematic things they came up with, it's amazing. Uh, Moses was taught all that. He could read hieroglyphics, all right? But because there's embedded idolatry in writing hieroglyphics, which is a long story, if you've ever seen it, there's a lot of little pictures of things in there. Uh, God didn't use hieroglyphics to have the Bible written. They used a, a different script. Moses was educated in all those things for 40 years, and then for 40 years he was in exile. He was a shepherd out in the desert after he'd killed an Egyptian. And then he, remember Pharaoh was going to kill him, so he took off and went and stayed with his father-in-law Jethro and built his life there for 40 years. And then God called him to go back to Egypt and bring the people out, and he was with them for another 40 years. So he lived 120 years. But how different was Moses' life? And the, the longing that Israel had when they were in captivity in Egypt, we see God has a plan. And Moses is able to say this, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. It passes. We need to trust God. He says, you carry them away like a flood, verse 5. They are like a sleep. Now here we learn something about men, but we really learn something about God. God does take people out of this world suddenly. That's what he's saying. You carry them away like a flood. What's the, uh, the, the hymn? I actually wrote down a couple of verses from it. Um, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its suns away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. That's clearly based on Psalm 90. Time is short. Life is brief. However long you live, you're, it's going to end in this life someday. God will, unless you're alive when Christ returns, and it'll end then on this earth, but you'll be with him. But life is short. God ends men's lives. He judges sin and for. Even the redeemed, he still has allowed us to experience physical death, but Christ has said, uh, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me shall not come into judgment, but is already passed out of death into life. So if you're a believer, when you leave this physical world, that is when your spirit leaves your body, until the resurrection, your body will be raised up again, your spirit will be joined with your body, and you'll be saved body, soul, and spirit. But on the day of your physical death, you'll simply pass to go be with the Lord. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for the believer, there's no terror in that, although it can be scary and painful getting up to the door. Okay, We all know that. We, you know, we see people suffering, but when they pass, they're in God's hands. And so we need to remember that God is sovereign over the deaths of his people. It says elsewhere, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God's not disinterested in the sufferings and in the deaths of his servants. But here Moses is really kind of recounting, I think, the vanity of life. He says, in the morning they are like grass which grows up, uh, the beauty of youth. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, the strength and the beauty and all the vigor and everything that youth has. But then it says, in the evening it is cut down and withers. Comes a time when God calls us out of this world. So we learn some very important things here. In verse 11, we have to jump down a little bit because there we find that God's wrath is to be feared. We learn something about God here, finally, number seven. And that is, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. 
He's saying if we really understood God's hatred and displeasure and sin, the fear of the Lord would be in us much more. Now, he's not talking here necessarily about any kind of distracting terror. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. But it's definitely not, well, Jesus is my buddy and he's happy with me no matter what I do. That's not what's being taught. It's saying if we understood that sin is something that God hates, and if we understand God and who he is and how he's revealed himself, you've got to figure when the best of all beings, the one who is good infinitely, when there, if there's something he hates, then it is worthy of hatred. You know, God hates sin. He hates it. Now, he allowed it to take place. He decreed it to happen or it wouldn't have occurred. But God is God, and so he can decree something and not be the responsible author of it. And he holds man responsible. You know, sin is always left at the feet of the creature because it's what the creature does. God's sovereign over it. But if we understood how much God hates sin, how much God hates your sin, you know, how much I need to realize how much he hates it when I sin, we'd get a little more sober-minded about our lives and we'd be a little more uh, circumspect. That is, we'd be careful. Say, Lord, keep me from temptation. We'd take that prayer that Jesus taught us that we just prayed a few moments ago and we'd really be calling on God sincerely, intensely saying, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Get us out of places where we're going to be tested. Lord, our hearts are corrupt. We still have to deal with sin in our flesh. We're so liable to be led astray. And it, sin is ugly. It is deadly. It is dishonoring to God. Notice Jesus said not just that we should pray that we be delivered, uh, excuse me, that we not be led into temptation, but that we be delivered from the evil one. We don't want to be serving Satan or doing things that are, the, you know, pleasing to the enemy of Christ. We want to be living life for him. So here Moses says in verse 11, Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Our fear of God ought to be measured by his displeasure against sin and, you know, who God is also. We also learn about ourselves. If you notice verse 7, what do we learn? Well, we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. A sober knowledge of God doesn't just you know, rule out all the, the statements where he judges sin, you know, the, the works of the flesh. If we see those things, that's in the book of Galatians, where those things are mentioned. If we see these, when we read about the, the works of the flesh, Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Remember Jesus said that's not necessarily just the act of adultery itself. It's if you look upon a woman to lust, you've already broken that, that commandment. So adultery starts with that fornication, that's sexual sin. Uncleanness, anything that leads toward that. Lewdness, idolatry, that is making idols out of things. Sorcery, that's interesting. Trying to use words and rituals to manipulate reality. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. Heresies are divisive doctrines. The word heresy actually means division. 
And we say someone is a heretic because they cause division among the brethren. Remember Paul, or actually, excuse me, Solomon, when he wrote the things that God hates, one of those is he that sows discord among brethren. Heresies, that's a work of the flesh. Envy, despising others for the good that they've seen. Murders, not just the act, but the thought in the heart. And that can include slander also, because you can kill a person's reputation. We've seen it, you know, it's come up how much, uh, well, what a deadly thing bullying is. You know, there have been accounts of young people taking their lives because they were bullied into suicide because they thought they had no value and, and you know, other people were bullying them. So murder can be more than just the act of physically killing someone unjustly. It is that, but we can murder someone with our tongues just as well as with our hands. Envy murders drunkenness. We need to be sober and not be given to excess. Revelries, you know, party, 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 and the like. Paul says, I'm not naming everything off right here. I'm just giving you an idea. These are the, the chief things, but things that tend toward this. And the like, of which I tell you beforehand. Now note what he says here. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past. Know what it doesn't say. That those who practice such things are okay because Jesus is their buddy. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they're okay because, well, the Lord understands. Okay, note what he says. He's, and note, and I've told you in beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he says practice. He means if your life is patterned by these things. Christians fall into sin. We all know that, okay? And there are Christians after, you know, we've got to deal with our lust. We've got to deal with our words. We've got to not listen to gossip and not be spreading slander. Uh, we need to learn to avert our eyes. We need to, you know, ask God to cleanse our hearts and get the filthy thoughts out of our heads and not put things in front of us that tend toward that. And generally, you know, all in all, Christians struggle with sin. But that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Okay? A hypocrite doesn't struggle with sin. A Christian does. They hate it. They're a lamb. Their nature's been changed. They do not want to wallow in the mud. That's what a pig does. And so when they find themselves tempted or they have a, a bad thought or they say a bad word or, or they have an outburst of anger, they go to Jesus and say, Lord, get this garbage out of my life. They go to the people that they wronged and they say, please forgive me. I shouldn't have said those words. I shouldn't have done that action. And they really do repent. That is, they turn from it and they cry out to Jesus. And the best way to cry out to Jesus is first to say, Lord, I cannot get sin out of my life. You have to forgive it and you have to cleanse it. And then he'll give you strength to fight against it. It doesn't mean you do nothing. It just means you rely on his strength to do it. So note what he says here. So who knows the power of your wrath or your anger, for as of your fear, so is your wrath. For we've been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. We need to get sin out of our lives. We need to get right with God. That's what this psalm is about. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Now, secret sins can mean things that we're doing that are wrong that maybe we're not even fully aware of. But in this case, it kind of maybe means sins that nobody else is aware of, that we indulge ourselves in whether it's in our thoughts or our words or our actions. God sees everything. That's what this psalm is saying. So we learn this about us. So we're consumed by his anger. We're troubled by thoughts of his wrath. 
All our sins are seen by God. God knows your shortcomings. So we need to recognize this ourselves. And then he says, For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. So what, what does this mean? Well, the whole thing taken together, he's saying we need to realize that God's not just angry with sinners and even his own people with fatherly anger because that's just the way he is. He's angry because of our sins. You know, Jesus never sinned. The Father was never angry at him until he became identified on the cross with us and our sins. Then the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And praise God for that. Christ took the wrath of God for our sins. He died in our place. God can, though, if you're a believer, he can have fatherly displeasure because it says in Scripture uh, that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So we don't want to be doing things that will provoke his chastening. And we're totally capable of provoking God's anger against ourselves. So we need to say, Lord, help us. Our days are brief. Note verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. The brevity of life, you know, while you're living life, it happens one day at a time. And not everybody, generally speaking, unless there's a war or a bomb goes off or something, generally people don't die all at once. And that's what fools the sons of Adam. Because we look around and we say, oh, it doesn't look like death is really prevailing. Watch an old movie sometime. You know, we watched uh, a film the other day, and uh, it was an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and it, was, it wasn't real scary, but it was, you know, it was a good film, I thought, and we were watching it. But I realized everyone, I think, everyone that was in that film is dead. They're no longer alive. They didn't all die on the same day, though. They died one here, one there, one there. That's what happens in this generation. Those of us who are older can look back and say, yeah, a lot of our friends have passed away. You know, death becomes a, a physical reality. Our time is 70 years, if by reason of strength, 80, and for some it's even beyond that. But he says it's still labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Time is short. Your time on this earth is brief, and I will tell you this and mark my words. It's a lot briefer than you realize. You're only here for a little while. And so living for yourself, ignoring Christ, not putting the Lord first, not Finding out who he is, getting to know your God, is a very foolish thing to do. You have a little bit of time here. You know, Enjoy it. The Bible says God gives us all things richly to enjoy. It also says the joy of the Lord is your strength. So as I'm preaching this, I'm not trying to make you be depressed. Okay, You want to be happy? Deal with your sin. The happiest people on earth are people that have gone to Christ and gone to God in Christ and said, Lord, please forgive me. Get this garbage out of my life. Help me to walk with you and to love you and to love your people. That's where true happiness is found. So we need to realize that time is short. Our life is labor and sorrow, as we just read in, in verse 10. There's struggle, so that's another thing we learn about ourselves. And finally, uh, as we see there at, at the end of verse 10, it, it ends generally a lot quicker than we think. A lot of people that had plans for uh, 2024 are no longer on earth. Okay, we, we lost quite a few people, I mean, other than people that we know. There were tens, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that did not make it through this past year. 2024 comes, and we don't know. One thing one, one person said, that speaking to adults, at the, I remember when the uh, new millennium began and the new century, the 21st century, one fellow said, 
The one thing those of us who are grown know for a certain about the 21st century um, is that we're all going to die within it. <laughs> and it was like, oh yeah, huh? Well, some say, well, we might, they might figure out something with the human genome and we could live to be, you know, oh yeah, probably not, okay? But maybe, we'll see. But the point is, is that your life is brief. So we need to understand that, and that's where the petitions come in. Note verse 12. If this is all true, then what do we need to be praying? So teach us to number our days. Help us to understand there are certain periods of life. You know, when you're young, you get educated, you learn skills, you learn trades, uh, you learn whatever you need to know to enter into your adult years, and then you enter into your vocation, generally speaking, whether it's on the job or, uh, you know, in the home or however. So we need to understand. Then there's a you know, retirement time, and how do you serve God with this time you've been given? Um, and so, you know, teach us to number our days. You've said we have 70, so you can plan your life to say, well, okay, I'm trusting that God will give me 70 years of active service, or at least I'll live to be into my 70s, and I can serve God actively. And then after that, I still plan on serving Him if He gives me life and wisdom. So that's what He says. Teach us to number our days. He doesn't say at the end of them. He means now. So that we can give our, gain a heart of wisdom, give our hearts to wisdom. So that we can be wise and know what God says and how to evaluate things. And he says, return, O Lord, how long? I love that. That's an uh, elliptical phrase. What he's saying, you know, return, O Lord. And really what it's saying is, how long will you be away? How long before you return and restore us to your favor? <clears throat> how long? And have compassion on your servants. Moses knows as we're praying we need to pray that God would have mercy on us. Lord, help us to walk with you. We cannot do this in our own strength or by our own abilities or by our own wisdom. We need to go to the one that has all those things and who loves us and who died for us, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this prayer really in verse 13 is the longing for the return of God's fellowship. Now, if you're right with God, as it says in Romans 5.1, being justified therefore by faith, that is put into a right relationship with God by trusting in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have that. That's your possession. Okay? Uh, very clear. It's present tense. The Greek word ekamen, it means we have peace with God. And so that's your possession. But sometimes we're not, I don't mean to sound non-reform, you know, you know, feelings don't mean a whole lot to some Calvinist. I think they're pretty important though, okay? But sometimes we just don't feel close to God. Most of the time there's a pretty good reason for that because we're neglecting his word, we're neglecting fellowship, we're not praying as we ought to, we're not turning away. You know the old saying that either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Uh, you know, we allow things to come into our lives and gum up the work. So we need to clear those things out. But we need to say, Lord, What's the old hymn, Just a Closer Walk with Thee? <laughs> okay, it's a pretty good hymn, actually. Um, Lord, I, 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 I want to have your presence. I want to be aware of your presence in my life. And not just a you know, warm, mushy feeling. I'll take that if you want to give it to me. But what I really want is to know that you're there and that you're helping me and that I can praise you in the midst of every circumstance, whether it seems good to me or not, that I can praise you because you're my God and you're going to turn everything to good. So... Return, O Lord, have compassion on your servants. You know, God's compassions, his mercies are new every morning, and so it's important. Note how he doesn't end with a note of, oh, we need to be in despair over God's wrath. He says, oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, meaning early in the day. 
Start your day with prayer. What do you do when you first open your eyes in the morning? It ought to be a prayer to God. You know, in Israel, the Orthodox, the first thing they say when they get up is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, they affirm their faith in, in God. And the last thing they say is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel. So here he's saying, satisfy us early. Start us off with your mercy. Note that we may be depressed and sad all our days. That's not what it says, is it? See, this idea of getting right with God and really dealing with sin is something ugly and deadly. It's so that we can live lives of joy. God wants you to be happy. It's okay to say that. Satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's why I want you to deal with your sins. God wants you to be happy. As one man said, God wants you to be happy, but he also wants you to be good. That means to obey his word and faith out of gratitude, not trying to earn salvation. He said, God wants you to be happy, but he also wants you to be good. And he has so ordered the universe that unless you're good, you're not going to be happy. Okay? And so if you're miserable, I would encourage you, go to Jesus. Ask him to help you. Don't just wall. And by the way, if you're suffering from depression, fight it. Okay? Don't ever just roll over and play dead and say, well, I guess I'll just be depressed. Depression is your enemy. And you need to recognize that. And if you're going through depression, fight it. Cry out to God. Say, Lord, deliver me out of this. Help me. And don't stop crying out until you know he's heard your prayer. Okay? Depression is, is no friend of any saint. Okay? Discouragement can be. The fear of God is a good, healthy thing, okay? Being disgusted with our own sin and self, nothing wrong with that. But don't just let that translate over into just giving up. God doesn't want you to do that. He'll help you, and he'll put it on your heart to begin to call on him. But note here, he's saying, make us rejoice that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad, I love this, according to the days in which you have afflicted us. God had to deal with Israel, now, he's not, you know, some could say, well, Israel was only going to have happiness for 40 years once they got in, well, pretty much because they kept falling into idolatry. But this is just a metaphor that he's using. He's saying, Lord, we've gone through a lot of affliction. Now, grant to us, having gone through that, that we can now enjoy the blessings of salvation, the benefits, the years in which we have seen evil. Lord, we went through a lot of stuff. Please help us now. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. And note, he recognizes that God was in control. The years in which we have seen evil. And then he says, let your works be seen. So he's asking God to comfort his people. Let your works appear to your servants and your glory to their children. From generation to generation, you see how believers and their children are part of God's covenant. That's an important doctrine that gets lost in a lot of evangelical churches that your work may appear to you. Open our eyes so that we can see your work, that we can recognize what you're doing. You know, by the way, if you're just getting all your information from the you know, media, whether secular or even Christian, if you're just listening to the news, you're not going to necessarily be aware of God's hand at work in all the circumstances of history. If you're reading your Bible, and then you know, there's no premium on being ignorant. It's okay to know what's going on in the world. But you need to judge everything according to God's word and discern it. God is at work. The promise that the nations will be brought under Christ, the Great Commission, that's never been abrogated. Jesus didn't say, go into the world and, and disciple the nations, unless, the, you know, there's some other religions and people are opposed to it. He didn't say that. He said, go 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, who's them? All the nations. Teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded you. And why is that going to be successful? That's at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And here's why I know the Great Commission will be successful, because Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the power. That's the promise. It's going to happen. The nations will be brought under the Christ's dominion. The Jews will be brought back into the church. We're going to see revivals like we've never seen before. I believe that's taught in the Bible. And I can show it to you if you're not sure. We'll sit down with our Bibles open. Christ has called us to victory. His word will go forth. He said to Peter, when Peter confessed Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus said, you are Peter, Petros, a little movable stone. That's what that means. In spite of Rome's attempts to make it sound like Peter is the head of the church or some foolishness like that. You are Petros. But upon this Petra, that is a big, giant, massive rock that's born out in the Greek language and in Aramaic. And upon this rock I will build my, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? What's he talking about? Gates are, you know, we think, oh, don't hit us with the gates. No, gates are defensive mechanisms. That's a defensive strategy when the city has a gate. Jesus told his church, told Peter and through the apostles us, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the power of God through the gospel. We'll be able to kick in the gates of hell. So when you see things like communist China, when you see things like the secularism that seems to be devouring our culture, we need to pray and we need to witness and those who are called uh, need to preach. We need to get the word of God out. That's what makes a difference because Christ is Lord of every area of life. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what he's saying here. Let your work appear to your service. Lord, we need to understand what you're doing. We need to understand our time and what we ought to be doing. Like the, the, the men of Issachar, it says, they understood the times and knew what Israel needed to do. That your, and your glory to their children. Our children have a future. It's in Christ. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. There's nothing more beautiful than God's people walking in harmony with each other in obedience to his word with their hearts overflowing with the love of Christ toward God and toward one another. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Lord, let us live so that it's evident that we belong to you and establish the work of our hands for us. Make what we're doing in our lives permanent, that is, to echo eternity and to prepare ourselves and others for meeting you and for eternal issues. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our lives are not just futile and frustration or futility and frustration. Our lives have meaning and purpose. And Moses concludes by saying, Lord, let us see your work, even in the work of our own hands. Help us to see that what we're doing when we obey your word and love you, even our meager efforts, however little they might appear, Lord, establish them. You're the one that gives meaning and purpose and power to the works of your people. Please establish our work so that our lives have meaning. And by the way, beloved, your life only has meaning in Christ. So go to him. He'll show you what you need to do. Get your Bible open and pray. We have a new year ahead of us if the Lord grants us life and strength. 
There's all kinds of wonderful things can happen. So it's Psalm 90. If you have time, read it through again today. Okay, and make it a prayer when you get to those, those last petitions, those seven petitions. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you for the promise of the gospel and the hope of everlasting life and the hope of the victory, Lord Jesus, that you will be triumphant, and that the nations will be discipled because you are with your people. So help us, we pray, to stand up for what is right. We pray first you'd work within us that we might be clean vessels, fit for your service so that we can serve you. And forgive us, Lord, where we have failed so miserably in doing that. But we look to you, Lord. We look to you and ask you to work and be glorified. And so we commit ourselves and all these matters into your gracious hands. And we thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, who loves us, who died for us, rose again, and is now at your right hand interceding for us, and who is coming again in glory to receive us to himself. So, Lord, in the meantime, as we await your return, help us to be faithful, to love you and to love your people and to love others as we have opportunity and to be rich in those works that you lead us into. For we ask these things, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.